0: Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so grateful for your goodness in our life. And just as Casey was saying earlier, Lord, you um, you want the absolute best for us. And I believe that when we lean into you, and we lean into what you have to teach us and to show us, when we invite your spirit to move in us, Lord, I believe you answer those those prayers. And so, Lord, tonight I, I truly pray that you would just fill us with new joy and new peace, Lord, that you would give us new insights, that there would be new excitement about what you're doing, Lord, that we would have our eyes open to see what you see, the good that you see happening around us, Lord, that we would have life and life to the full. So, Lord, I ask that you do that work. Cover us as we open your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. 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 You guys can be seated. As you're grabbing a seat tonight before I dive into the message, I just want to mention this. Um this week we are launching something called Alpha. We've actually been running it in some small formats. And uh, it's one of my favorite things that um, that really happens around churches, and it happens worldwide. It's an amazing, amazing um, program or course or class that you can be a part of, and uh, and I just and we're launching it still kind of behind the scenes, but I found out that there are some spots that are available. We're kind of officially launching it in the fall, um, but there are some spots available, and so it's really something that's for anybody. A couple of different things: if you want to just get connected and experience community, but do it in the context of having conversation around kind of the essentials of Christian faith. That's really what. what This is all about. Um, And so, if you're a person who says, I just want to get connected with a group of people, that's a great place to start. But also, um, if you ever have questions like, What do do we really believe in Christianity? Or if you yourself are just kind of a skeptic and you're saying, I don't know exactly what the beliefs are of Christianity, why don't I have questions? And uh, it's an environment where there is freedom to ask questions and freedom to dialogue with people around spiritual things. And so, uh, if that's you, um, you can still sign up for it. I think it launches this week, um, but you can go to the info desk after the service and you can. You can sign up out there for it or get more information about what it is. But I wanted to mention that tonight before I dove in. Um, now, of course, tonight we are studying Leviticus in this series called God in Search of Us. And, uh, and there are two important phrases that I don't know if you've noticed, but we've been carrying them through with us through the entire series. That Through the book of Leviticus, we're discovering a God who is unlike other gods, and we're discovering a people who are to be unlike other people. That there's people who are not like other people. And so much of what we see in Leviticus is God speaking a language, uh, using symbols and practices that people were familiar with in order to show them who he is. And we've been looking a lot at that through the past several weeks. Um, We've been seeing God's character, something about God's heart. We see things through this. But today we're going to move a bit deeper into the second statement, a people who are unlike other people. And we're going to emphasize that because Leviticus takes a bit of a turn when you come to chapter 17. In fact, tonight we're going to look at chapter 17 all the way through chapter 20. Again, some of you are joyful in that because we're covering lots of Leviticus in one evening. But, um, but beginning in chapter 17, Leviticus starts to get very detailed about the behavior of people in Israel. And and this is really, really tricky in light of what we saw last week with our Easter service and what we talked about last week. We saw that God used religion. We saw that God ended religion. And then we saw that God reversed religion. And and, and religion, as we stated last week, is any system or any set of rules that people obey with the intention of altering God's favor or earning his love. Um, God ended that. God ended this whole religiosity, this whole idea. And, And so then the conversation comes up then of how people live and how people behave and how does that intersect with the reality that religion is dead. That religion is that is over, how do you talk about people 's behavior without bending towards religion? this is really interesting right like so god 's going to talk about behavior he 's going to talk about the way we live our lives, but he 's not doing it religiously so how do you do this um, how does transformation actually take place if it 's not religiously how do people become unlike other people uh, without becoming moralistic or legalistic how does this actually happen so Tonight's um, treatment of Leviticus may be a bit of a departure, and and I just want to do three things. I want to remind you of a few things that we've already sort of looked at, and then we're going to summarize these chapters. And then we're going to attempt to answer these questions that I just asked. How does transformation of a person's life, how do we talk about behavior, how do we talk about how people are changed without turning this into a religious dialogue or religious hoops that we're jumping through? So first, um, th- th- there's some key things that I want us to be reminded of, and that's this, that the world in the moment that Leviticus is being written, when these people are receiving Leviticus, was an incredibly dark place. In fact, if you ever hear somebody say this, if you ever hear somebody say, I can't believe how dark the world is today, or I can't believe how... How bad everything is, I can't believe how evil the world is today, if you've ever heard anybody say that about this day and age, you're hearing that from a person who doesn't know anything about the day and age when Leviticus was being written. Because the world was exponentially darker. The world was a gruesome place. It was a violent world. It was a world of of manipulation, a world of power struggle, a world of unchecked sexuality. It was a world of incest where where families were incestuous with each other. Child sacrifice was being practiced. Genocide was carried out regularly. It was something that happened on a yearly basis. Brutal slavery was the norm during this age. It is truly an unruly and out-of-control time in human history. It is in every sense of the word. When you think of the word primitive or barbaric and you think about what those words mean, that is the day and age that people are living in here. And that includes, by the way, the ancient Hebrews when we began reading about them in Exodus. They're among this population But God is taking them somewhere, and and not just a, a physical destination like we read about in the Exodus, but God is also taking them toward a way of being, a way of living, a way of moving in the world, and he's moving them towards this idea of flourishing, being the kind of human beings that God created them to be. He's moving them toward this life that he created them for. So what we have in Leviticus is a nation of people, some estimate somewhere around a million people at the time, who are coming out of 400 years of slavery, and they have zero idea of how to actually conduct themselves and live their lives. So if you got a million people coming out of 400 years of slavery, and you don't know how to conduct yourselves, you don't know how to live, what do you do with that? How do you figure this out? Well, the answer is that you watch the people around you, and you get your cues from the people that are living around you, and that is the last thing thing that God wants for these people, which, brief side note here, uh, this is an ongoing reality for the people of God. We do not have our values, we do not have our desires shaped by the surrounding society, right? We are in the world, but we are not of the world. That's a, an ongoing biblical principle, but let's get back to this. What we have in these four chapters in Leviticus is instruction on how to not be like the people that you live among that's what we're getting here. How to not be like the people in the surrounding culture. So I want to just give you a quick summary of these chapters and you can go read them on your own and kind of learn more about them if you'd like to, but I'm going to summarize these because they're distinct. Um, In chapter 17, we have specific instructions about what to do when you're out hunting and you kill an animal. God says, I want you to bring it into the camp and I want you to bring it to the altar so that I can be a part of this whole thing. And you say, well, why does God care that they do that? They're just out hunting for food. Why would they do this? Well, In verse 7, chapter 17, verse 7, he makes it clear. It's actually one of the weirdest verses in the chapter. Um, But basically, he alludes to this idea that the people of Israel, even at this time, they're so primitive and so barbaric that if they would have taken a kill, that in the moment that the animal died, they would have made a sacrifice to uh, to goat demons. That was the common thing, that, that they would make an immediate sacrifice to thank the goat demons for the life of this animal that was given. And so literally, God's like, stop doing that. Don't do that. The next time you're out hunting, get it, and I want you to bring it here, and I want you to be reminded that I am your provider. I am the one who created all things and puts these things before you. And so he addresses this thing, these things. Bring them to me so that you can see that I am your provider. So that's chapter 17 in a nutshell. Um, chapter 18 deals very specifically with things around sex and sexuality. Uh, it is important to note that for these people, just like for us, there are multiple dimensions of sex and sexuality. In the ancient world as well as the modern world, sex is never simple. It's never simple. Sex and sexuality can be incredibly complicated, and often it's connected to other things. And so just as true as it is today, it was true then that sex can be about power. Um, obsessed can be about trust. Sex sex can be about pleasure. Sex can be about insecurity. Sex can be about intimacy. It, It can be about a number of other things as well, but sex is always deeply intertwined with our spirituality, with our identity. I could spend a significant amount of time, by the way, on uh, unpacking chapter 18, but the point is very simple, and it becomes very clear. Hebrew men in particular, and this is what God's very specific about, Hebrew men in particular in their households need to be different from the Egyptians and the Chaldeans that live around them. They need to be different than the rest of the world when it comes to sex. They need to recognize the complexity of this and live accordingly. That's basically chapter 18. Then we move to chapter 19, and God continues, and he talks about revering parents and honoring the Sabbath. It's, you know, some of my favorite stuff there. Uh, he talks about not worshiping idols. He puts a, a social system in place. In chapter, in chapter 19, have you ever read the story of Ruth and Boaz? Uh, when you meet Ruth uh, in that story, she's gathering the leftovers that are left in the field behind those that were gathering. That was actually a law that was instituted here in Leviticus where God actually says we need to provide a social structure for caring for the poor in our community. And so God instructs and says you need to leave some of the wheat behind. And when you're harvesting, you leave some things so that somebody like Ruth, later on in her story, can come along and gather and have food to eat. So, so he's, he's teaching them to care for each other in these sort of passive ways. Um, he talks about theft. He talks about wages. He talks about legal processes. He talks about how to reason with your neighbor In fact, it's here in Leviticus chapter 19 that we get the second half of the great commandment. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? There's two parts to that. This is the second part. Verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Uh, A bit further on, he extends that. And says it's not just your, it's not just your neighbor who lives in proximity to you. It's not just the, the person that, it's not limited to the person who looks like you or believes like you or as a part of your tribe. He actually extends that to the sojourner or the traveler, or the wanderer who you might come in contact with. Which I think is this is really good advice for God's people, especially right now. Um, that that we could actually love people who believe differently than us, that we need to lean into them and love them the way that we're being called to. So so chapter 19 is filled with all sorts of things, and all of them have to do with how we treat one another. How do you treat each other? Are you treating each other the way I want my people who are distinct to treat each other? So there's a way you treat people, and it's reflected in chapter 19. And then chapter 20, God addresses child sacrifice. And, And there's a few other things that are included in that, but primarily... Chapter 20 is about child sacrifice and not to do it. And then he makes this interesting point in verse 22. He says, you shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them and that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. It's a really interesting word picture, isn't it? I want you to do all these things because I don't want the land that I'm taking you to to vomit you out. So we need to hear this because this is really important as we start to answer some of the questions that I posed at the beginning. He's saying this is much as much for you as it is for me. Like if you live like everyone else, you will be vomited out of the land. That's a pretty clear picture, right? Like you, I mean, if you want to just like live the way culture is, if you just want to go the way society is, guess what? Your life is going to be vomited out of the land. That is not something, I don't know anybody that goes, that sounds like fun. Nobody anywhere ever says that, Right. God wants the best for them. God wants the best for them. A couple of verses later, he continues, and he says something that I think gets at the heart of why and how people experience transformation without religiosity. Listen to this, verse 24, two verses later, he says, I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. Hold on to that. That should sound familiar. He says, I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the people. It's really clear God's intention was to pull them out and make them a different kind of people. But listen to that first part. You shall inherit the land and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. So let's start answering this question. How do we become people who are not like other people? How do we become, how do we look at chapter 17, 18, 19, 20, and how do we say, okay, I'm gonna be different than everybody else? Do we make it about the laws? Do we, do we use guilt or do we use shame? Do we use fear and intimidation? Is that what we use? Is that what this is all about? See, if, if we use those things, honestly, that's not really different than anybody else. That's not different even during this time or any other time. It's not different than anyone else. If, if these are God's methods to use guilt and shame and fear, then he's not different than any of the other gods, right? And if this is how we're motivated, then we're really not like other, unlike other people. We're just like everybody else, and our God is just like all the other gods. So so the answer to this, and and what we see in this, is resolved in what's being quoted when he tells the people that they will inherit a land flowing with milk and honey. He's, God is actually quoting something that he said previously to these people. And so If you have your Bible, I want you to go to Genesis chapter 15 with me. And if you don't, don't worry about it because we'll get there. But as you're turning, um, I I just want to tell you a little bit about Abram or Abraham. The story of Abraham begins back in Genesis chapter 12. It starts with God telling Abram to leave his country. And he says basically this, Abram, I want you to get out. I I want you to leave this place. I want you to get out of your country, leave your people, leave your father's house Everything that's familiar to you, and I want you to go to a land that I am going to tell you about. So this land flowing with milk and honey is a land that was promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, long before, hundreds and hundreds of years before the moment we're reading about in Leviticus. And what we know about Abraham or Abraham is that he did this. He leaves. He's faithful. And then God makes this promise to Abram. He says, I will make a great nation of you, and out of your descendants will come one through whom all peoples of the world will be blessed. So God comes to Abraham and he chooses him. You are going to make a great nation. I'm going to bless you. And here's why. People are going to see something in you and your descendants that's different. I'm going to do something through you, and everybody everywhere will see, they will be blessed Because of this. That is the agreement that God made with Abram. And by the way, the Bible calls this agreement a covenant. So this is called the Abrahamic covenant. God makes a covenant with Abraham. Now, a little bit about this word covenant. Literally, when you translate the word covenant, the word covenant means to cut. This is going to make way more sense in just a couple of minutes. Um, But this is also why, when you make an agreement with someone, or we, we say this phrase, there's this phrase that's been tossed around culture that we cut a deal. We cut a deal. It means we made an agreement. We agreed to something. So, covenant means to cut. So, God makes a covenant with Abraham. He's been promised the land and a people and the fact that the world would be blessed through his offspring. But then there's a problem. And I think it's a problem that a lot of us in the room, we faced at some point in our life. It doesn't take long to journey with Jesus to face this. God makes a promise, but then Abram isn't seeing it fulfilled. And at one point, he finally is just like, Lord, you promised me that there were going to be generations, but it would help if you started by giving me one child. Like, there can't be nations, there can't be generations if you don't give me a child. Then he says, I've been waiting 25 years. I'm 99 years old. How long do I have to wait for this? And so, so, so in Genesis chapter 15, he's actually asking, will this ever happen? God, will you ever fulfill the promise that you made me 25 years ago? So in Genesis chapter 15, he has a face-to-face meeting with God. It's one of the most significant passages in all of the Old Testament, and yet it's one that seldom is taught or considered, and it's this beautiful thing that God does in this moment because um, this is where Abram and God cut a deal. Verse 1 of Genesis 15 says this, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Like, God, are you ever going to fulfill your promise? Are you ever going to come through on this thing you told me? I mean, I left my country. I left my father's house. I traveled all this distance. I came and did what you told me to do. And you made this promise. And I just don't see you doing anything with it. Like, what is the deal with this? Verse 4, it says, behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. In other words, God says, don't give up. (laughs) Don't give up. I'm gonna keep my promise. I want you to keep going in this. And then God does something really amazing with him. It's a picture that he paints for him. And remember, the Hebrew people are a culture. They're not a a words culture as much as they are a picture culture. They're an image-based culture. They matter to the Hebrew person, and so there's this picture in verse 5 that begins to unfold. It says, he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So he just says, look at the stars. That's you. That's the promise I've made you. And immediately it just sort of resonates with Abram, right? He believed the Lord, and it was counted... To him as righteousness. So God reminds him of the promise, says, Yes, I'm gonna do this. Walk outside, look up there, that's your that's your family. And then verse 7, it says, He said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? I love how real Abraham is, right? Like, first of all, God, are you are you gonna give me the child that that, that that I want? Are you gonna are you gonna give this? And God says, yes, just trust me, go look at the heavens. And then he believes him, and then just a little bit later he says, okay, now how about this land thing? <laughs> are you really gonna take me into the land? Like, how do I know this is gonna happen? Like, I just love Abraham because he's just like us, right? Like, I get it, God, you're making promises, but can I trust you in this, right? I don't understand. How can I know? And then what happens next, the next picture that God gives them is is the the most remarkable thing, one of the most remarkable things you'll ever read in the Bible, and I mean this. What we're about to see in Genesis 15 is something that we will see throughout the entire story of the Bible, but it is so beautifully illustrated here, and it's so unique, and it's so wonderful. In verse 9, same chapter, it says, he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Now, I just want, I want you to notice something really interesting in this passage. God says, I want you to bring me these animals. Bring me, bring me the, the, the heifer, a female goat, a ram, bring me all these animals. But then Abraham, God, he does this, and, and without God telling him anything else, Abraham starts to cut them in half and lay them out, starts to fillet them and lay them out in their halves. And the question is, why? Why would he do this? God said, bring me the animals, and the next thing you know, he's slicing them in half and, and creating a trail of carcasses, right? God did not tell him to do this. God just said, bring the animals. Abraham wasn't given the instructions, so what is going on in this moment, well, it turns out that Abraham is doing something that everybody in this culture would have done. Everybody would have understood in this culture. In fact, when people during this age would have heard this story, it would have made perfect sense to them. Abraham, not living in a written culture, but an oral storytelling culture, is doing something that was common. They were making a deal with one another. This is how a deal would have been done during those days. Today, you get a lawyer and you show up in an office and you sign some papers and you say you're gonna hold each other accountable to this through a legal system. But whenever they made a contract with someone, when it was this significant thing where they would say, you promised me this and I'm promising this to you, there was this idea of how do I know that you're gonna do it? And the way they would do that would be by putting themselves in a position where there were consequences for the brokenness of their word. They would act out the consequences of their unfaithfulness right in front of everyone so you would bring a bunch of animals and you would you would cut them in half and you would make a trail you would make sort of an aisle down the middle of them and there would be one person on one side and there'd be another person on the other side and then when you made this deal the two of you would pass through these animals and essentially what you were saying to one another is if if we fail in our agreement, whoever fails in this agreement will become like these animals. You will become like these animals. Your flesh will be torn. You will, you'll be t- your life, you'll lose all your credibility. You'll lose your life. Everything will be, will be taken from you. So they'd walk between the animals, between these halves of the animals. And if, you, if your word was not backed up by your actions, then that everyone knew. We saw you do it. You said this was what you were willing to go through to hold your word accountable. So when God says, bring me the animals, Abraham knows what's about to happen. We're gonna make a covenant. We're gonna cut a deal. This was was the making of a contract. And God is gonna be at one end and Abraham is gonna be at the other end, right? That's what's happening here. God and I are going to cut a deal. God over here, me over there. There's no way that Abraham would have seen coming what comes next. Verse 17, this is amazing. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river the river Euphrates. So you go, well, what is this all about? The smoking pot and the blazing torch. That sounds really confusing. How did a smoking pot and a blazing torch go through the parts of this animal? Well, um, people really struggle to translate these words and understand what's happening here. But here's what we know about these words. First of all, we know this. Something appears, right? Something appears in this moment. is sitting there with this, this image in front of him, and now something appears in front of him. And the words that are used to describe these things are the same words for the smoke and the blaze that were used to describe the flames, the, the top of Mount Sinai, when God came down on it years later. So it's the same terminology. So they hear this, this, this torch and this pot, and they, they think immediately this is connected to this other thing, right? Um, It's the same words that were used to describe the pillar of God's presence that led the children of Israel out of Egypt. The exact same Hebrew words, the fiery cloud of God's presence. And so what we conclude is that what Abraham is witnessing is the presence of God at the other end of this ritual or this covenant-making picture. But it's not just that the presence of God astonishes Abraham. That's not the most amazing thing here. It's what the presence of God actually does. God passes through the pieces, and Abraham stands by watching. He doesn't pass. God passes through the pieces and then approaches Abram and says, this is the covenant that I'm making you, that you will inherit the land. That's what happens here. So instead of Abram walking between the pieces, sealing the contract, and showing the consequences of it being broken, we have God taking that and taking those consequences. This this is wildly significant, wildly significant, because there are two challenges that I think we face as people of faith. There's two things that we typically wrestle with, and and the first of those is the challenge of trusting God. Can I really trust God? Abraham says, how do I know, God? How do I know the land is mine? How How can I actually trust you? And then God does this amazing thing, and you know what he's saying to Abraham? You know what he's saying to us in this moment, in this picture? He's saying, I've promised to bless you, to be your salvation. And if I don't do what I say, my immortality will suffer mortality. My infinity will will suffer limitation. My power will suffer powerlessness. May the impossible be made possible. May I be cut off. May I be destroyed. May my body be ripped into pieces. God says, this, this is how you know you can trust me. Because I am saying that I will be held accountable if I don't fulfill this thing so the the issue of trust and walking as a person of faith immediately that there's this resolution that comes to this but then there's the second problem the second challenge and the second challenge is this it's probably greater than 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 the other one and this is the struggle of living a faith-filled life and and that, that problem is me me god you can do your part but what if i don't do my part What happens if I don't keep my end of the deal? What if I fail? What if I have days when I don't keep up my side of the contract? Then what? And you have to just see what God has just done in this moment. Remember, the the tradition is that the two parties walked through the two halves. He didn't make Abram walk through it with him. God goes through it alone. In other words, what he's saying is, If you don't do what you say, may my immortality become mortality. May my infinity suffer limitation. May my power suffer powerlessness. May the impossible become possible. May I be cut off. May I be destroyed. May my body be ripped to pieces. Do you see this? God's saying, I'm going to take responsibility for both sides of The contract, I'm making a deal with you and I guarantee both sides of it. This is amazing, isn't it? And it should sound familiar to us because when you think about this, isn't this the gospel? This is the gospel. From the very beginning, God has been revealing his unconditional love and showing, guys, this is how I operate. All the way back with Abraham, he was saying, this is how I operate. This is who I am. This is the way I move towards you. From the very beginning, the life of Jesus that he offers us, it is never a cooperative effort. It is never a contract where we have to keep up our side of the deal. It is never a partnership where we are being held responsible. God comes through and says, I will take the curse of the covenant for both of us. Which, which gets repeated, and we fast forward to, like, Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, there's this very familiar story that we've just read recently. It says, as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. And listen to what he says. Take, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank of it, all of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many Jesus is is pointing right back to this thing. Jesus says, I'm creating a new covenant. We are cutting a new deal, but it is a renewed and better covenant. But it is still me who takes the responsibility for both sides. It's the most beautiful picture for us. I love this because Abraham comes to God and he says, God, I need to trust you more. And, And I don't know how I can trust you. And God didn't say, How dare you? how dare you question me no he says look i want you to I want you to see that my promise is is bigger and greater than anything you could ever imagine and he shows him this he he responds to this moment of questioning and fast forward to the ministry of Jesus. There's this dad that comes to him one day and says, will you heal my son? And, and Jesus says, I will if you believe. And he says, I think I believe, but help my unbelief. And Jesus doesn't chastise him. He doesn't say, what do you mean help your unbelief? You need to have belief. Jesus just heals him. He heals him. The, the father's like, I think I believe. I don't know, but help, me, help my unbelief. And he goes, I'll help you. I'll heal your son. And then you'll really believe, Right. That's what Jesus does. If you go to God, if I go to God, and and, and if we say to Him, God, I don't know if I trust you enough. God, I don't, I don't, maybe you say, God, maybe I don't trust me enough. God, I I don't like how I'm keeping up my end of the deal. I don't like, I don't like how I live in light of all you've done for me. Whatever you say to God, I don't, I'm struggling to trust you. I'm struggling to trust me. Either one, what does God say to you? Every single time, you know what God does? He says, Would you look at the covenant? Look at the deal that I made. He will bring you back to the gospel and he will show you. You were lost without me. You were swimming in brokenness without me, and I rescued you out of that brokenness. So, in Leviticus, when he says that there is this this community, this covenant community, he's not telling them to do this or else, do these things. You better obey all these rules or else. He's reminding them of the promise. Remember, remember the very last verse of chapter 20, he's saying, I made a promise to you and your fathers before you that I would carry you to this place. And that is how we become people who are unlike other people. It is this unbelievably beautiful thing that we call grace. That's how we're transformed. And grace changes everything. Everything. It isn't white-knuckling it that changes us. It isn't by shame that we are changed. It isn't by fear. It isn't by guilt that we're changed. When the unconditional love of God and his unwavering grace become the operational mechanism of our lives, that changes everything about our lives when we immerse ourselves in the reality of what we've just seen, and we picture God walking through on our behalf and we see Jesus on the cross or breaking the bread with his disciples in all of those moments, when we see that grace lavished upon us, that is what changes us. I mean, imagine, imagine waking up tomorrow. I mean, I, this is, oftentimes this is my prayer in the morning. I, imagine if we all could wake up tomorrow and move through our day with complete confidence in God's love for us. I mean, what, what if tomorrow morning we woke up and there was, there was this deep sense that we received God's grace and that we were good? Imagine walking with that for 24 straight hours. Imagine how much easier it would be to forgive people around you, wouldn't it be? Imagine how, how much easier it would be to come to a resolution with a neighbor if, man, I'm, I'm moving so confidently in God's grace and God's love. Imagine... Imagine just how much more confident and also how much more humble you might be. Like, I have all the confidence in the world at the same time, I'm pretty humble too because I kind of know who I am. Imagine this. Imagine imagine how you would treat the people around you if you had this deep sense of security that came from knowing God and I are in this complete place of unity and, and goodness. I've received his grace He's done all of it. I don't have to do any of it. I don't earn it. I don't deserve it. Imagine that. If you just knew deep in your soul, I am loved by the creator of the universe. Imagine what that would do. When God's love and God's grace become the operational motivation in our life, everything begins to shift. Everything. We become different people. Maybe even a people who are unlike other people. We change because we're loved. We live in in a really low grace environment right now, don't we? I don't know if you noticed this. (laughs) We sort of live in a low grace environment these days. Um, There is so little tolerance for error. Uh, Everybody seems to be on pins and needles everywhere. So many people are doing one of two things. Uh, Either we're trying to not offend and end up in a headline or we're pointing out other people's offenses. (laughs) That's pretty much par for the course in our culture right now. Can't turn on the news. Can't without seeing it every day. Um, So no wonder, no wonder our perceptions of God get warped. (laughs) No wonder we start operating out of insecurity. No wonder we start leaning into fear or letting, letting guilt dominate our lives. Imagine that. I mean, It's it's no wonder that we lose sight of God's loving grace. Look at the place we live. Which is why I think we need to hear this. That that God keeps his end of the bargain and our end of the bargain. He cut the deal and we win on both sides of it. And so let me just, I just want to say this and, and let this just sink into your ears. Let it go into your heart. Let it touch the deepest parts of who you are. God loves you unconditionally. He loves you unconditionally. God loves you completely without condition. He covers both sides of the contract. He is for you. He is with you. (laughs) He's on your side. He loves you. God has you covered. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? So now, may you be men and women who see the picture clearly that your God is a God who has made you promises and is prepared to keep them. May you live in the light of his grace. May you live in the shadow of his love. And may tomorrow be a radically different day because you know he loves you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 I love you guys so much. Thanks for being here tonight. Thanks for keeping me busy on a Thursday night. Who knows what we would have done tonight. There's so many other things that we could have done and this was the best place to be, wasn't it? Yeah. If you want to pray with somebody tonight, there's, uh, we've got folks that will be around hanging out. Just hang around your seat. Somebody will probably check in with you or you can come down front if you'd like. But Um, But just hang around, talk to some friends, stop by the info desk out in the commons out there and uh, we will see you guys next Thursday. See you guys later or Sunday. See ya.